Hello, my friends. How are you? Welcome to 30 Albums for 30 Years. I am your host, Jay Sweet. Today is a special interview episode. I will be sharing with you my conversation with noted guitarist, band leader, and composer, Charlie Apicella. Now, Charlie's known for leading two groups, the first being Iron City, that is his organ trio. But today, much of our conversation revolves around his other group, and that is the Griots Speak, G-R-I-O-T-S. That band includes bassist William Parker, saxophonist Daniel Carter, and percussionist Juma Sultan, who is known for his work with Jimi Hendrix. So I think we get into a, a really good conversation here. It develops nicely. And Charlie has a very specific way of thinking about music and about his approach to music. And I think that really comes through in this conversation. So I hope you enjoy. Here it is, my conversation with Charlie Apicella. All right, Charlie, welcome, man. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the show. Uh, Again, great to meet you. And um, I really wanted just to talk to you kind of about your whole musical journey, but I like to start off with what you're up to now, your new your new record, and uh, and anything you want to talk about that's currently happening. Well, thanks for having me, man. I love I've been reading your blog on the uh, thirty best albums of every year. That's great. Cool. Um, two big things. Always we have Iron City. You know that's my organ trio, and that's. Uh, when I get called to do Blue Note and Chris's and jazz and blues festivals, it's usually with Iron City. So that's like a core um, organ, drums, guitar. Mm-hmm. My ear, it's, it's kind of the baddest group in New York right now. So we play Arthur's every month. We play a place in New Jersey called Triumph once a month. Sure. And um, <clears throat> so we have our own little sort of version of the Chitlin circuit that we're kind of operating on. So uh, I've also added an education program that I do where we're teaching in NYC schools and also getting other clients like in other states for private schools yeah. and that's called Blues Alive. Okay. So Blues, <clears throat> excuse me, Blues Alive is it's really my fully integrated teaching method of all the different things I've learned from the great masters I've studied with and the sort of elevator pitch for it is that it's called the living tradition of the blues. So what we do is we take the elder musicians, we take the ancestral style of learning, call and response, the oral tradition, and we bring that into institutional settings. So we go into students' classrooms, we give a little bit of a demonstration, and then we play with them. So I'm doing this with Avery Sharp, mm-hmm. Sultan, and Myra Casales. So we're going out, you know, visiting kids in their schoolroom, you know, in the, in the classroom. Right. And then the third thing that I'm working on uh, is, is also a huge one, and that's the, the band called The Griot Speak. So that's what my newest, my latest record, and my next two records actually are going to be with The Griots. So that's Daniel Carter, William Parker, Juma, and myself. Awesome. Let, let me just ask you about the uh, the school programs that you're doing. So this is mostly going into the public schools then? In well, I have, I have a range of clients. Okay. So I can service 
clients. I can do a lot of different things. I used to write curriculum for like school districts in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. So I can do professional development for teachers. We do like jazz ensemble. You know, like we come in and guest uh, conduct a jazz band. Sure. Combo, and I use like I use my blues curriculum to augment that. And kind of what we're, what we're always doing is we're mixing institutionalized settings of learning with the, um, you know, the traditional sure. styles of learning. So, for example, if, I, if when we have someone where we go and do a jazz combo, so jazz combo is like piano, bass, and drums. Mm-hmm. And a guitarist and a couple horn players, sort of thing that you would see like at a jazz summer workshop, like a jazz summer camp. So we would go in, we would give <clears throat> a short presentation. You know, we use like slides and history and music literacy, along with demonstrating for the kids how to play jazz, working on improvisation. So it's basically taking what students are already doing in their jazz combo, and we're adding this whole other element of um, African American studies music history, general music literacy, sure, different way to um, learn off of the records, right? Yeah. I came to this method because I didn't go to music school. I went to school for African American studies and arts administration and art history. So I actually got three. I did three things all at once when I was at UMass. Okay, UMass. Okay. Yeah. And um, I studied with, I studied in the apprenticeship setting. I had a a little bit of music theory and music history and kind of like the music school training, but I really picked and chose, I only did them like as gen eds. I didn't do them as like a degree. Right. Um, So I had the good fortune of studying as an apprentice with some of the heaviest, you know, people ever. And that method of learning to me was the important thing. So now that Juma and I have this relationship, now that I collaborate with Avery Sharp, these are people who are on the level of a griot. Mm-hmm. So it makes perfect sense to take what we do as a band on stage, presenting the message to the audience on stage, to taking that a step farther and constructing it in a way that we can present it to kids in schools. Anyone, not just young kids, college student, you know what I mean? It can go, really run the gamut. Sure. Professional development training, Excellent. Yeah. So um, tell my listeners, I mean, so a griot is like a sort of a troubadour, I, I, I gather, a West African troubadour of sorts, right? Or, yeah, so the griot is like the storyteller and historian, and the they have a, a broad social function in certain West African traditions. A lot of the music that came to the New World and was built upon it's griot instruments, griot music, griot. In the lifestyle of being a master musician and being a griot, there's a certain method of teaching, which is like the oral tradition. It's these ancestral forms of teaching. So this is an ancestral profession, ancestral caste that still exists to this day. So they exist in Africa, but they also exist in our environment, right? So like the urban griot is something that... Um, you know, we talk about among, you know, myself among, among the group or among sure. the elder musicians. Right, right, right. Cool. So 
Uh, let's talk about that band, if we could, for a second, the Griot Speaks band. Um, when did it form? How did it come about? So this is, <laughs> everything is just such a twisted story, you know, it's, it's just such a journey. So I noticed on Facebook, you know, late one night, I got up for whatever reason and looked at Facebook. This is back around November of uh, 2020, 2021, maybe something around that time. And I noticed that <clears throat> Juma was appearing at a club right near me here in Brooklyn. So I hadn't, I didn't, I've been obsessed with Juma forever. Sure. The first thing I was ever into was Jimi Hendrix at Woodstock and, and Juma's contribution to Jimmy's band. So I didn't know Juma was active. I've been living in New York for 10 years at the time. I never once heard his name utter, mm. I hadn't seen it online, nothing. I didn't even know he was around or active. And it turns out he was playing at a bar right down here. So mm. It was a memorial service for one of the patriarchs, one of the, the inventors, one of the one of the focal points of what became the free jazz movement in the late 1960s. It was called okay. Studio We. Mm -hmm. And um, it was a memor memorial for Du Bois, who was the patriarch of this environment. So I went to this event and just started interacting with William Parker, Daniel Carter, um, Juma obviously was hosting it and um, like George Braith was there playing. You know, there was a range of people who are who, who are well established uh, masters in the improvisation world. Mm -hmm. So I went and connected with them. To take a step back from that, the roots of that interaction <clears throat> were I had just recently get, been given a drum by Youssef Latif's wife, Aisha. And it's a drum that he brought back from Pakistan. So I brought this Himalayan folk drum with me when I met the cats that day. Uh -huh. And I jammed with them and I played on the drum. I didn't play on guitar. So the drum, having this instrument come into my life has really changed so much of the way that I, it really changed my life. This, uh -huh you know, conduit that I got from Yusuf Latif, from his religious studies in Pakistan, right. opened up a voice for me that was compatible with the way that these guys operate. Sure. And it was not as relevant to the way I operate on guitar. Hmm. So it opened that ability for me to have a conversation with them that was more on terms of the music and less in terms of me like being a guitarist. So it was kind of an interesting, you know, lesson and moment there. Um, it turns out they always want me to play guitar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, because, um, um, my, I don't love playing guitar with them all the time because I'm too strong a guitarist. It's too overpowering. It's too, you know, I'm used to playing in the driving Iron City, hard bop, organ sure. thing. And the music that we play in the griots is much more um, nuanced and delicate. So the ability for me to play a, a drum with just one or two voices on the drum, I play all these different shakers, mm -hmm. all instruments that I got that I get from people who import from Nepal and Tibet. 
Interesting. Okay. The instruments that I'm interested in are Himalayan folk instruments, which is why on the cover of the record, I used a, a carved mandala. Right. It's like this beautiful rose. It's like a big doorway that somebody carved in Nepal. Yeah, yeah. So we use that for the imagery. You know, it has um, no real religious significance for me, but more of a philosophical and sort of a grounding presence in my life. Very interesting. Yeah. So what was your connection to Youssef Latif? Youssef was my first music teacher. Wow. Uh, privately or through an institution or? At UMass. Oh, okay. So Sorry. when I... <clears throat> I only started playing guitar six months before I went to UMass. So I wasn't a musician at the time. I desperately wanted to be. So um, I immediately started studying African-American studies. I started operating on the peripheral of music as much as I could. So I was like writing grants to get, to help concert series that were being produced there. I worked on the radio station. I wrote a jazz and blues reviews for the newspaper. So I was just immersing myself in all these other things because I couldn't actually play. So I kept mm -hmm. practicing. I would go to jam sessions. I learned off the real book and all that. And then I, by my, the uh, second part of my like junior, uh, you know, like, yeah, junior year, mm -hmm. right, third year. I wanted to get into Yusef Latif's class. He taught a composition class. So I brought in these very crude manuscripts that I wrote of these original compositions, just for my time listening to him, listening to Rasan Roland Kirk, listening to Archie Shep. Those were like the three big ones for me at the time. Always with Jimi Hendrix being like the largest presence. Jimi Hendrix and Grant Green, you know, are always like the two largest presence there for me. And, um, I basically auditioned for Youssef. He liked what I wrote. I, just, I had no music literacy at all. Wow. I taught myself how to, I had nobody, I had no lessons on even how to read a staff. I just figured it out by looking at the real book and listening and figuring the rhythms out. So I was able to kind of like write my own tunes. Presented okay. to Youssef, he liked it, let me into his composition class. So once I was a student in the class, I was able to get, you get private lessons with the, your professor. You can go see him whenever you want. Yeah. Right? So I would have composition lessons, you know, whenever office hours or whatever it is. Right. So I became a student of his. So this is before I could really, I was just taking very rudimentary guitar lessons at the time. <clears throat> I then met Dave Stryker and I became, you know, he and I became like best friends and sure. he really filled in all the gaps for me. But again, I would study with him privately. I would drive from Amherst down to New Jersey. Yeah. I would go to, you know, I always time it around when he was at Blue Note or he was at some club or he was at Cecil's or he was at some club that I could go to. I would right. get a hotel or whatever, or stay with friends, go to his gig, get a lesson all the next day. Hmm. Okay. Usually wake up and go back for another hour or two just to hang out or do another lesson. And then I would go home for six months and I would work with him that way. 
Interesting. Apprenticeship. He he would send me his handwritten charts. I would put them all in finale form and send it back to him. Like we had, you know, he was teaching me every aspect of being a professional. Right, right. Oh, that's wild. And, um, he started producing. You know, he he taught me how to produce records. Sure. So I, he worked with us in the studio for my first two, and then I've done the net let You know, past seven since then, I've done it on my own. But he taught me that. So. Um, you know, I was doing well, and I met Pat Martino, and he one night gave me his card at Blue Note okay. and told me to start coming down for lessons to Philadelphia, to his house. Sure. So I did that from August of 2014 until when he retired in 2018, mm -hmm. um, and I went down every six months for four years. Wow. Okay. And you were living in New York at the time, or are you still in Massachusetts at that time? Oh no, I was in New York since since then. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Did where'd you grow up? Well, I moved around a lot, so I'm from Hudson, New York. Okay. Uh, so generally within the Connecticut, Massachusetts, New York, Troy, New York. Um, mm -hmm. I've lived in a lot of different places. I've actually lived here in Brooklyn longer than anywhere I've ever lived. Okay. So uh, were you listening to uh, jazz or improvised music? As a, When were you exposed to, to that? The first thing I was ever exposed to was Jimi Hendrix at Woodstock. So being from upstate New York, you know, my uncle was at Woodstock. He saw Jimi a couple times. My dad was into Hendrix, but my dad only had all the later stuff. He didn't, he didn't, his older brothers took Jimmy's first three records that usually everybody knows. So I didn't even hear those. I heard Woodstock. I heard right. he had a couple cassettes, which, uh, you know, were posthumous collections sure. of his stuff. And it all featured Juma Sultan on, on congas and percussion. Mm -hmm. And this sound of the congas as sort of a, you know, this is what I've learned about congas is that it is, it, it's a universal sound that really draws a wide audience into your music. It's almost like the conga player is like the rallying cry. And then people are there and then you expose them. You open, you open them up to what your overall message is. Hmm. So the first thing I ever heard was Jimmy. That's a, that's a good first. It is. And it completely, <laughs> you know, it, it completely you know, took over my life really, you know, it, it's funny that you said so uh, there's a staring at me as we talk is it's the best yeah and i i mean i look at that poster every day as i teach you know and um i really have it there for my students to say who is this guy you know yeah um and i and then i get an opportunity to talk <laughs> uh, you know about this masterful like you know well, wizard. Me, yeah i mean so take that idea here let, let's do a screen share take that idea and imagine the person that you're exposing them to is Juma. Right. Right. So, you know, what we do in the classroom is pretty amazing. Here, let's, let's check it out. I mean, it's, it's, it makes me laugh just to think about it. I don't know if you can hear it, but. Yeah, I can hear it. Considered in Western standard, one bar of music 
So there you go. So that's like, you know, that's what for me, it's, it's taking that stuff that I learned the way I learned it and bringing it <coughs> where the people are. Right. Right. That's cool. I mean, so then talk like, uh, how does that filter into the, the, the new record? And if you could just talk about the record, the process of the, of the new record, cause it, it's, uh, I, you were kind enough to share with me an advanced copy of it. And, and I loved it. My only thing that was challenging for me was having to stop each track and start it up again. Cause it, you know, it's like it was individual tracks and it really, it's, it's, a, it sounds like something that really needs to be listened to, you know, uh, complete. Wow. That's a great, I'm so happy to hear you say that because part two is uncut. So I, we had so much material that they actually made two records. So one of them was hanging on to until next year. Part two is just an entire 40 minute chunk with no edits at all. Cool. I like it. Yeah. It's, like a, it's in a silent way. It's side A and side B of vinyl. I want to release it on vinyl only. It's for, it's, it's mastered for vinyl. It's the right, you know, length, mm -hmm. duration, but it's two sides of vinyl record. And that, that, so we're, we're already talking about the next record. The next okay. record is called call to action, call to prayer. Hmm. it's more descriptive of what goes on in the studio, but it's far less accessible. Just in the sense that it's just a continuous improvisation with no breaks. So the what you're hearing on, on this record, Destiny Calling, is I took our improvisations <clears throat> and I just trimmed the beginning and end of these long... 30 to 40 minute events. So it sounds like a song, right? Wow. Okay, cool. Yeah. So there are no edits. Well, there's no, there's no overdubs. Okay. I was gonna... It's just taking chunks out and moving stuff closer together. Mm -hmm. So there's edits, there's like cuts. Right, right. I understand. Yeah, that's but clear. Everything you're hearing on the record, it it's continuous. So like every track, that's when it, that is the beginning of what happened and the end of what happened. It just wasn't like that abrupt. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. There's yeah. One place, and I probably wouldn't even be able to remember find it, where I had to take William Parker's bass line and repeat it for a couple bars until. The whole thing settled, so <laughs> so in that sense, I guess that's kind, that's kind of an overdub. It's just kind of compressing everything, so it. Sure. Fits. Yeah. Right. So I can tell you how it works, and and the very first thing on the record is the very first thing we did when the microphones turned on, and the very last is the very last. Gotcha. It, generally, in exact order, there might be one or two things moved, but it's generally that's what happened the first thing that day and the last. Mm -hmm. I extracted a whole chunk out of the middle that became a second record. Right, right. But all done in one day. All done within four hours. Wild. Okay. It was a continuous four-hour performance event. Wow. And so completely, 
completely improvised or did, was there some written material for it? Well, okay. So I wrote. It sounds like there's themes. What's none of them actually made it into the record. Wow. Okay. One tune sparks is a tune I wrote. That's the title of my first record. So the last track on there is an actual tune. Mm -hmm. All of the sketches that I wrote in the days leading up to the rehearse to the recording, yeah. I only shared it with the pianist when we got there with the keyboard, with the, with the organist, Brad Whiteley. He's the only one who knew I wrote anything down. So I just threw these, you know, couple bars, sketches. I threw five of them at him, mm -hmm. just, you know, and I would start playing it and I would show him where I was on the page and he would start playing a version of it and we right. would see what happens. Oftentimes, all, 90% of what I played in the record, I just deleted. Wow. Okay. So most of what, you know, there's very little of guitar on the record. Yeah. I was going to ask you, I mean, it's, it's definitely not a showcase of your talents. You know, it's, it's a, a musical experience much more than a, uh, a display of, a you know, somebody's, uh, ability. Well, uh, yeah, I'm not interested in that at all. So, I don't, even people I love very much, all the records are identical. They all sound exactly the same. You can play fast or whatever. None of my records sound like that. You know what I mean? My records, you can drop the needle on any one of my nine records and you know immediately what tune it is. Nothing sounds the same over nine records that it did on any other part of any other record. And I really pride myself in that. I write tunes very specifically so they're contained, right? Mm -hmm. Um, when you come to a situation where you're playing with Juma and William Parker and Daniel as the Grios, the four of us as the Grios, but I'm also playing with Iron City simultaneously. So I'm actually playing in the middle of two different trios on this record. So really all I'm doing on the record is some version of conducting. Right. Okay. When I'm playing on the guitar, is just information to just keep the thing happening. Right. Because I know what William sounds like. I know what Juma sounds like. I know what Daniel sounds like. And then I know what my guys are capable of. That's so I'm basically true. just direct, you know, I'm just kind of like subconsciously veering them into these directions that now we're playing behind Daniel. Now we're playing behind Juma. Now we're playing behind William. Right. And it's in and, and the, the, the sort of, the soloist is always <laughs> is always uh, like flowing, right? Right. So, yeah. You know, Jumas says that he calls that running. He's one time he told me he said it's all right to run. I was playing the drum and I was laying it down underneath something he was playing, and he said it's all right to run, which means he he'll take it now and I can solo, basically. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like a game of duck duck goose. Everybody's sitting in a circle, and it's you know grooving away where it is. One person gets up and runs around and does something different. Then the music kind of moves over to that, to what he was doing, and it becomes that. And then right. it comes over to what I was doing. Now it goes over to what William Parker was doing. Now it's back to me. Now it's Daniel for a long right. time. It's Juma, and it's me again, right? It's, it's like, and um, you can't tell that uh, in a recording studio because it's all flat. Everybody is equally loud. Right. So 
in the editing process, the editing process is, is assigning the beginning and ending of a track. It's also making everybody of the six of us louder or quieter. So it's a constant recipe where I'm flipping the two people who are soloing and the four people who are accompanying. Right. So it's almost as if you're you're using the uh, the editing process as an arranging process. Well, it's and... not the arranging process. I remember I had to do it the next day. So I remember what happened. Okay, fair. It's mm -hmm. not an arranging process. I, I knew we we know what's going on sure. you know I mean? but you can't deliver that in a recording studio because everything is flat there's no space between anyone it's an abstract it's a it's a false way to present what it is we're actually doing mm. so very quickly start editing like that was on sun the next morning i was back in the studio and i was already like okay on this tune william started this thing and then Daniel picked it up and then me and Brad were here. Like I had to go and like put it back in the right order in terms of who was louder and quieter. And I had to do that quickly before I forgot. Wow. That's, that's a really unique way of doing it, man. Yeah. Well, I'm good at this. I've done, you know, I've, I'm used to making records very quickly on no budget. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I make, I make all my records on just what I can scrape by from my restaurant gigs. Yeah, so right. I have they're all it's all done in my head, you know, the weeks leading up to it. I just need to go in, have somebody capture it, yeah. and then be very quick on the computer later. Okay, so all the all that work was done by you. You didn't have a producer helping you with that. You did it all. It, well, the engineer in Brooklyn did a good job, but the per, he recorded it. But the person that my real collaborator is Chris Sulit at Trading Aid Studios. He's an incredibly facile, you know, on the computer, on Pro Tools, I guess it's called, right? So, and he's he's produced every, he's engineered every one of my records. So, okay. he and I have great, you know, we basically grew up together. With mm -hmm. Dave Stryker, you know, kind of training us both, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, Chris has won Grammys already and everything. I mean, he's like the top guy. So... Okay. He and I have an ability to work together. Mm -hmm. So I know what's possible. So I knew in the studio what I was getting and I knew what he and I could do with it later, which is what made sense, how it made sense. It, it, this record could be like Bitches Brew too, if we cut it up and then like what you were saying, arrange it. You could do that with it. Mm -hmm. I don't have the money for that. I, I would do it if I could sit around for a week and work on it or two, you know, that was, that would take like two months to do that. Right, right. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that album because uh, um, it, it's unique in its own way. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's, I really enjoy it. But it did channel a little bit of that bitches brew in a silent way. You know, if I had to categorize yeah. it or at least explain it to somebody, what's the record like? I, I would maybe use that as a, a possible example, although it's not that, of course. But, you know, there is elements of what of that sound and what you what you're doing it seems that's a huge compliment daniel carter and i oh we mostly talk about miles davis he and i are absolutely um you know driven by that appreciation and that ability to, to access something that we learned from miles um we, we both I, I you know i would i would say daniel might consider that a compliment also to me <laughs> sorry the uh <clears throat> 
for me, the sort of elevator pitch for the record or the tagline is um, in a silent way meets, you know, early Santana when they were rehearsing to make the album Abraxas. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting that like all of these things that we're talking about mm -hmm. are summer of 1969. Sure. Yeah. You know, all of this. Right. <laughs> some reason i mean i guess it makes sense that i'm you know very close with juma now he's the god of the summer of 1969 he was in all these places right right, right. you know so and, but just talking about the magnitude of this juma played with coltrane in 1965 in los angeles wow okay. Juma was a bassist before he committed you know before he was more known as a percussionist. So Train was out there and Jumo played with him, played bass with him. Wow. That's crazy. I never knew that. Yeah. Okay. Fast forward to May of 1969. He and Jimmy run into each other in Woodstock, start working together. And it, you know, it really, he, this is my opinion. He won't, verify or even comment on it and mm -hmm. i've tried to get him on on camera saying it uh, and he won't say it but to my ear juma is the link between is what allowed or facilitated jimmy playing star spangled banner because he's really doing something very similar to john coltrane he's taking a folk a folk melody of sorts mm -hmm. yeah. and he's playing it as free jazz so jimmy playing star spangled banner has somewhat of a precedent in train play, you know, or miles playing, you know, dear old Stockholm or something like that. Right. Right. Folk, a folk didn't to the level of free jazz necessarily. Right. Right. Train wrote Alabama and that's reminiscent of a folk melody. He wrote Dahomey dance, which is reminiscent of a folk melody. He, the way he applied my favorite things is in the sort of informed by a folk folk presentation. Green sleeves is another. Yeah, Afro blue. I yeah. mean, the list is exhaustive, right? right but sure. on the surface, what is it? It's kind of like a half notey sort of melody with a very iconic lyrics presented mm -hmm. in a free jazz setting. That's what Jimmy did with Star Spangled Banner. In my yeah, yeah I mean, it's funny. That's a good. Uh... Their the history there is amazing, right? And uh, I was just talking to my class yesterday about about this. We were listening to uh, I don't know if you're aware of this recording. It's it's a little off topic, but Jose Feliciano uh, played "Star Spangled Banner." Oh gosh, I want to say I want to say '63 at the wow. World World Series Game Five, wow. and it it was this major event in which he reinterpreted the song and. Uh, and he got a lot of flack for it and was actually banned from American radio for some time or from wow. some, because, you know, how dare you mess with this, you know, the national anthem, you know, all he did was read. Re a lot of heat for it. Jimmy yeah. Did heat that today a person would get, you know, canceled for and death threats and be, be, you know, he'd be the topic of some political speech. Yeah. You know what I mean? He, he would be, you know, so he took, fire for something you know that 
but it was a nuanced presentation. He wasn't, first of all, he said, we don't have to go into the whole thing. I can talk about him forever. Yeah, One yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go for it. Yeah. In an earlier period, when Jimmy would, he would burn his guitar, there was showmanship, he would, you know, destroy the guitar, he would destroy the amps, he would have a, a physical outburst on stage, right? Which was somewhat the fashion of the time, right? So like the who would oh, do sure. that little thing. Mm -hmm. Became cliche. But in some ways, it was Jimmy's earlier musical abilities and musical capacity. And he was sort of acting out physically. Lo and behold, he starts working with Juma. Suddenly he channels all that energy and all that sort of destructive, powerful force. Right. Very musical now with Star Spangled Banner. He channels his youthful exuberance, his fury. You know, he, he uses his, um, just like Train, used his empathy for the, he, Alabama is about the the bombing which it was just the 50 it was just the 50th anniversary of yes. about two weeks ago birmingham alabama right mm -hmm. the church bombing yes. right <clears throat> so alabama was his his response to that right jimmy's response was of you know the current political situation maybe vietnam included but jimmy was in the military he was in the army he was a paratrooper in the army yeah mm -hmm. He and Billy Cox were in the army together. Billy Cox was the bassist. Right. At Woodstock. They were playing with Larry Lee, who is an absolute top tier virtuoso, who just got back from Vietnam and had almost died from being hit with shrapnel from a bomb. So the core of the group, Jimmy, the other guitarist, and the bassist, were all veterans. Right. Yeah, you know that's incredible that you point that out. I don't think many people will realize the significance of that. That's well, really... a lot of people don't realize. Yeah, I mean, I could go on with. I think about this stuff a lot, and now I'm hanging out with people who were it. So it's kind of it's on the top of my mind. It's been on the top of my mind for you know since I was eighteen or seventeen or whatever it is. Sure, sure. Similarly, John Coltrane was a veteran of the civil rights or was a veteran of being black. Right. And he was in the military. He's a Navy guy. Cold he was in, well, yeah, of course. But I'm talking yeah. about if you make that comparison between if Jimmy's is like a, a, a comment on the Vietnam experience. Right. And is a comment on the Alabama church bombing experience. Right. Coltrane was a veteran of that experience. Right. That's were a veteran of the Vietnam experience, right? So John Coltrane, it's his empathy for the African-American um, reality. Right. Of the time. He's a veteran of that. Right. So there's be similar, but he, that's all fine and dandy. But you look at one thing, there's there's one very important thing in common with those two things, and that's Juma is right in the middle of all of this right and now he's in the middle of your music and now we're working together we're bringing Just, it to school yeah right that's heavy man that's um i know <laughs> that's why 
that's why I'm so like, that's why it's so important for me to like do this right. You know what I mean? And the window is short. He's 81 years old. He's not going to want to be running around with us, you know, forever. You know what I mean? He's going to want, he wants to do other things. You know, right. we just Blue Note a couple of weeks ago, we have this record. The, obviously, he's on the next record that it didn't release yet. We made a third one in the studio with Daniel. So I already have two other records with him in the can. That's smart. That's great. For coming years. Yeah. Wow. What an experience to be around a guy like that. It's the best. I mean, you know, and of course, William Parker is, you know, also a veteran of this improvised music for sure, right. but different kind of a little bit of a different thing but that's great so i mean you and you've been around some uh some really remarkable musicians i'm looking here at your list of people who you've been in contact with or maybe have recorded with and uh you know it's funny when i listen to you you're playing every one of these individuals i can hear an element of wow you know thank you that's great yeah. I mean, you mentioned even meeting B.B. King. I mean, it's that blues element and some, especially when I hear the Iron City stuff. Um, and then you've had some experience with Dave Holland, I guess, right? I did. I wrote a, um, I wrote like six tunes that we played in upstate New York at a college. It was a, um, there's a bassist named Malcolm Cecil, who, you know, was on all the Stevie Wonder records. Sure. Yeah. He was a, innovator of the Moog synthesizer and um, he was retiring and Dave, he and Dave Holland are good friends from even when they lived in like London as kids or whatever. Right. They lived upstate. I was asked to come up and be a part of this and I arranged like um, Amazing Grace and then uh, you know like four Ellington tunes. I think we did one of my own too, you know one of my own compositions too. Mm -hmm. uh it was all he's great he's good yeah. great guy to play I, with i'll tell you that yeah i mean and and you know and then you think about the connection to him with miles uh especially around the time of the music yeah he signed my uncle's copy of bitches brew for me yeah i mean yeah. so I, I mean holland to me is you know he's a wizard he's a you know just he's, he's very he's i mean he's great He's good to play with. It was, you know, he's he's a good bass player. There's no question. Yeah, but just a great musician as well. And I see yeah, he's and similarly, I think even with his bands, you know, like he really and it, and it's kind of a similar way in which you're kind of describing. He um and what Miles kind of did too, he really utilized the the musicians that he had. Yeah. And it's like the musicians he used for certain projects, really those projects were somewhat geared towards those musicians, you know. I've come to discover that that's really part of the folk tradition. Agree. Daniel attributes this quote to Miles Davis, but he says all the time, if there's a buzz in the band, the band will put a buzz in the world. Wow. Cool. Like and that's how he feels about working with, that's how he feels he and I have together working with Iron City. He loves playing with the organ and drums. He, but it needs to be, he needs to be the leader, right? He only is a leader. He's um, in the sense that he only wants to play in an improvisational setting. So Daniel is a great, I mean, he's, 
you know, he's the one I, I spent a lot of time with Juma because we're on the road a lot, right? Right. But he's the one that he and I are the closest friends. So we just get dinner and hang out and he comes over here and we jam. Sure. We're, we're doing all the, you know, we're choosing what projects we want to do and we're bringing people in the studio and we're doing like, the band is, ju- is really just me and Daniel, right? So we do duo performances, we're making a duo record, and then we add people onto that, right? Yeah. The Grio speak is when it's like all four of us. That's like a thing of its own, right? Yeah. That was really started by me and Juma. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting the way that these guys operate, that they have a way of um, having certain boundaries and parameters within these different subsets of bands that they have. Yeah, right. We can all play solo. We can all play as a duo with each of the, any of the four of us. We can all play as a trio. We can all play as a quartet. We can bring out a rhythm section. It's just this completely modular ability to adapt to your surroundings. And that's really, that's such a survival, such an ancestral to me and traditional way of doing something, you know? Sure. I always come, came to the realization that if I show up at a gig and the bass player doesn't show up, I'm just going to play solo as if it was what was supposed to happen. Right. Sure. Show must go on kind of thing, right? It's not even that it must go on. It's why, what's preventing it from going on. Right. Because you have the tools to do it. I mean, and I could sit down like Joe Pass. Right. One of the most, probably the most important person for me is Joe Pass. Right. Right. In terms of taking what, here's what Joe Pass did for me. It's all the same shit. It's all the same. As intense as Jimmy can get is the same thing that he's channeling as Chet Baker. It's the same thing he's channeling as Frank Sinatra, as Joe Pass. They've mastered the instrument in a way that they can channel this other thing, right? So what Joe Pass, what I demonstrate with Joe Pass is that he could take everything that Jimmy was opening up on the world for me Mm -hmm. and play it in a way that made sense to me on solo guitar. Cool, yeah. Right, so that's why I'm attracted to these people. And you say that I, I have an ability to kind of like sound like, like, like I've, I don't know, however you said it, but that's just because I'm learning by ear all the time. Right. And then I'm going to people to help decipher it. Who just, mm-hmm. I'm just lucky. They're like the best people to go to. Right. So I would find things on a record and I would ask you, Seth, what is, what were you doing here when you did this? Mm-hmm. Or I would say to Pat, what was West Montgomery, Pat Martino? What was Wes Montgomery doing when he did this? And now you get Pat Martino telling you, but he's also telling you what he thought Wes Montgomery was doing. Yeah, right. It's a very deep way of, because I don't have like this huge ability to play guitar. I can mm-hmm. pretty much only do the one thing. So I had to pick the one thing that was going to get me the most, that I loved the most, which was straight ahead jazz. I can't play Jimi Hendrix licks. I don't know any Led Zeppelin songs. I don't know any guitar stuff at all. I know nothing. I don't know how to do right. Chuck Berry. I just know how to play like. Well, that's, that's interesting. Cause it seems like, uh, yeah, it seems like your musical being that you came to the guitar later in life, you didn't do the traditional 
guitar lesson type thing, like at a music school, like what I do every single day, teaching kids songs that I think they should know, or here's a Led Zeppelin lick. You might dig this. Here's the, um, it really kind of, it seems to almost have shaped you into a certain. I don't like that. So I never did that. And I'm not interested in that. Yeah. That's I cool. love Led Zeppelin, but I don't, it, it's, I'm, I have no interest in sitting here and playing like Led Zeppelin. Right, right. And I, and I, I respect that. Like, uh, I love Led Zeppelin. The Iron City's last record was called Groove Machine. Right. There's tunes on there that I had started when I was working with Yusef Latif. Some of the sketches I told you made sure. it finally 15 years later, I finally figured out how to put them into a tune so they make sense. So there's several tunes that I wrote on that record, which is just splattered with all this stuff I worked on when I was studying with Archie Shep and Yusef Latif and John Blake mm -hmm. in that earlier setting. I was listening at the time, I was listening to um, Presence by Led Zeppelin. Great and, you know, the Wayne Shorter, those four or five Blue Note records of Wayne Shorter. So that record, <clears throat> all the tunes I wrote ended up sounding like Wayne Shorter, like Led Zeppelin versions of Wayne Shorter. <laughs> wow. Okay. No, I don't, you know, there's, you, but you got to understand, it's like the notes that they're playing. It's not the aesthetic. I don't use any pedals on my guitar. It's not all guitar heavy. Sure. It's the way that a person composes. I only compose for acoustic jazz ensemble. It's the only thing I'm interested in. I'm not interested in wah-wah pedal and mm. stuff. Right. I'm interested in the way that this old guitar sounds acoustically. And then what instruments blend with it to make to allow the guitar to sound the best, just like Wes Montgomery, like an old Wes Montgomery record or a Johnny Smith record. Yeah, Johnny Smith, yeah, he's a great one, sure. You know, so that's really what my aesthetic is. My aesthetic has no. I could not dislike rock music more. Hmm. Like I have no. I've. I don't know anything about. I know who all the guys are and the guitar stuff, but I don't know about bands yeah that's really unique and interesting i mean um there's another guy i know i don't want to mention but a very good guitar player lives in my area and uh you know i'll call him up and i say hey because i do like i'm almost a little different in the sense that i par partially just out of survival i play in a lot of different styles and i play in the wedding band and i hmm. you know i'll play a solo guitar gig for you know whatever it is hmm. um and, and i have my things that I love to do musically and I have my concepts and my approach, but, um, you know, I will sort of, I don't, I don't want to say prostitute myself, but use my talents, you know, in a way to, to you know, go. Everybody does their thing. <clears throat> my skill set coming into it was limited. So I took a narrow path and just put all my energy into it. Sure. So I wasn't exclusive at all in what I was doing on guitar. I just only went for the thing that I was the most interested in. You know, I didn't, in other words, I only ever learned jazz standards. I didn't just learn guitar. I never sat down and just like noodled on guitar to figure out rock stuff or whatever, or guitar stuff. So I'm, I'm, I don't do what I do as an exclusion of that. I just ne really didn't have time for that. By the time yep. I was playing guitar, everybody I wanted to play with was playing this stuff. So I, I didn't have all the stuff when I was a kid playing guitar. I like started playing guitar as an adult 
to get work with heavy people. You know? Yeah, but it's, a, it's such a unique path. I mean, I don't know if, I'm sure you realize that. Yeah, it was incredibly frustrating and disappointing for the longest time. Now I'm actually good. So <laughs> it's not frustrating anymore because I can play the way that I am happy with. Right. So it's not like a constant burden that I'm so far behind my peers. Sure. But Pat Martino told me, don't do anything. He Pat was very concerned with me being a band leader. And <clears throat> he said he never wanted to be a sideman. He only ever wanted to be a leader, even when he was a, a kid playing as a virtuoso with these older great musicians. He mm -hmm. said he got something else out of that, but it was never his goal. His goal was always to make his own records as a band leader. And he said, do not treat this like a craft. It's not a craft. It's only art. Don't do wedding gigs. Don't learn other styles. Don't do it. Now, he was telling that to me. Probably it was a very specific thing maybe to me. Sure. But there's a universality to it to some degree. It's that I'm getting permission to focus on the thing that, at the very least, he thinks is most important. Yeah. Right? Like, he was giving me permission to take my time and only do just this. Now, I don't know if he had something against wedding bands and rock music, or if he was just telling me personally. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I do. Um, but in any I, event, I'm, I just, whatever he did, he told me, I just do it. So that's what he said. That's what I'll do. So I don't, I don't need to sit here and beat my head against the wall. You know what I mean? Sure. I mean, and he's, uh, I mean, who more... Well, that's such an authoritative statement, you know, and uh, the people who you've studied with and the people you've mentioned as influences and stuff, it sounds like, you know, they all did have a very specific, and I don't want to say it wasn't, it wasn't narrow, but a specific stylistic element, a specific path, a definitive way of how they wanted to present their music, like a Jimi Hendrix was definitive in the way he played. And Miles Davis certainly, uh, of course, a lot of these guys had to function as sidemen, probably, you know, which is part of the thing, but uh, Yuslaf Latif, Pat Martino, and Archie Shep, I mean, Dave Holland, William Park, they all have, when you think those names, yeah, you know, you just think of them as, uh, as artists. Right. Well, now Avery, you know, I do a lot of stuff with Avery Sharp. Another well, one, yeah. You know, in the teaching and in concert. Right. <clears throat> So he's one that's absolutely in that, in every category you, you know, you mentioned there. But the thing that's important about all these people that I recently kind of put it in these terms is that they're all great storytellers. Fair, yeah. Look, Pat Martino, if you would go to see Pat Martino at Blue Note, it was the Pat Martino story. Yusef Latif, it was always the Yusef Latif story. It's the Jimi Hendrix story. Right. right? These are experiences that are larger than life. These people were so, you know, they had such a huge bandwidth of energy and, and life around them, right? That they, it wasn't even about, like, like music was only the best thing that they could use to get this message across. It's just so much bigger all the time. Everything is always bigger. It's always bigger stories and bigger personalities, you know, and that's what's interesting to me. I don't like guitar players. 
it's it's not interesting to me. That's why I'm, I turn myself down a lot on my records. I want to hear the people I'm paying, you know, X hundred dollars each to be there. I want to hear them. Sure, I listen yeah. to myself hours a day. So, and I love the way I play and everything, but it's not, you know, it's not interesting to me on a record to hear a guitar all the time. It's just not, I'm not interested in that. So, so I'm not really interested in people who just make records of them soloing over their own tunes that kind of sound like hard bop or right right which has been done a million times right and mo most people just do the same thing over and over again right right over and that's what was like just to bring it back to your record uh the, the most recent one that i that i heard i mean that really comes through i uh it's you know i was almost surprised that because i know what a talented guitarist you are you know and i was like He's not really even playing that much. You know, it's more about the music. It's not about a, a showcase yeah. your ability. And I and I I respect that. Thank I think you. that's very important, you know. And uh and I think you've articulated that in, in such a great way that actually, you know, has me thinking a little bit. You and know, I did a good job because I played I played nonstop the entire four hours. Right. Wow. It just I literally just turned me off. A lot of times when it, me and Daniel are trading fours, mm -hmm. we're both soloing at top volume over each other. So on the record, I just muted him for two bars, made me louder. Muted me for two bars, made him louder. Yeah. So it sounds like we're trading fours. We were just blowing at the top of our lungs for five minutes straight. Unreal, man. That's crazy. So decisions you made... I mean, it sounds like you've actually kind of thought about it as it was happening, which the decisions you wanted to make later in terms of the editing or the, it's, you know. I'm not really making decisions, though. I'm just remembering what's happening. Yeah, but I'm saying. Playing, that's just one of the things we do. That's just one of our bags, right, is that we play together loud simultaneously. That's right, just something that we do from time to time. But, but what, makes, sense, what, makes you think, what makes you think to turn yourself down at that specific moment? You know, like, how do you remember, like, or how do you make make that decision kind of are you making those decisions in real time because i i would i'd almost be really i'd really be here's, interested. How, here's how you do it because everything me and daniel play i only play jazz vocabulary he only plays so-called jazz vocabulary which means you can easily break our, our phrases into four two-bar statements sure so what we're doing i mean uh I don't know if you want me to play it, but I, I could show you an example. Yeah, please. I'm playing just because we're playing, just because we're playing at the same time and kind of at the same volume doesn't mean we're not totally interacting. Of course, I understand. Yeah. What made me turn one thing up and one thing down and ping pong it for the course of like the solo section of a tune. Right, right. These only come tunes if you want to try to put it on a record. It's just what happened. Sure. You know, it's kind of like no big deal. You know what I mean? It's only a big deal if you want to like make a record out of it. So I was, I was just like, oh, here he and I were like, we were soloing together, which is a thing that we do. It's part of our vocabulary together. But it just doesn't make any sense. You don't, you can't hear anything unless you just turn one of them off. It's just on a recording, it just makes no sense. It's like looking at two, it's like, see how our two things, if our, if our two screens were like on top of each other. Right. They're not on top of each other in reality. 
but when you funnel it through a recording, you have to make you have to put one thing forward and other things back. So I just and remember I know what he's saying in his statement. I know when he's pausing and I'm responding. So I just I just emphasize it by making one of us quieter. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm, I'm so like I'm thinking of an album such as like uh, Ornette Coleman's Free Jazz, for for example, right, where it's these two uh quartets i believe playing simultaneously at the same time and without changing the i don't think there was any real concern what before the record came out to bringing levels up and down i think it was it's just here's the presentation here's a conversation everyone's having together and it's kind of noisy and kind of uh almost at times confused for me and for a lot of listeners and other times you can pinpoint certain things but you made the way your process almost sounds to me, and uh, is that it, like if I listened to your unedited version or un, unaltered version of of what you were doing, it would sound widely different, wildly different than what what we hear. And I just think that's to me, it's amazing that you that process is really unique, and uh, I, I I find it pretty fascinating. If we were playing the instruments that they were playing we could then do it in a large room the way they did it when mm -hmm. they recorded that a lot of what we do are very subtle little you know ancestral instruments that you need to be in an isolation booth with a close mic right yeah. so <clears throat> william parker is a bassist Right. If you can only write one, you can't, you'll see the personnel of the record. I had to write like seven things for what each of us play because you can hear them. Right. Mm -hmm. So William Parker is the bassist. I'm the guitarist. Daniel Carter is the saxophonist and Juma is the drummer. But William Parker also plays, um, you know, some indigenous string instruments. He also plays like an Indian oboe. He also plays pocket trumpet. Daniel plays tenor, alto, soprano, sax, trumpet, flute, and piano on the record. I play guitar, which is one thing. And then I switch over to percussion, which is madal drum and Tibetan singing bowls. And um, on that one, like a shaker, right? And right. Jumi, you can just write percussion, but sometimes he's playing flute. You know, he has these Native American flutes from his, you know, Native American heritage that he sure. uses, right? So when you have such a wide range of instruments that have a broad, you know, they have a dramatically different uh, dynamic ranges, you can only do that in the studio if you're mic'd close. Gotcha, you're right. Or Nick Coleman with two, you know, acoustic jazz ensembles, they're not switching instruments. So all you have to do is just get is good mic placement in the room that they're playing in and they'll be able to play to the room when you're in the recording studio doing what the griot speak does we don't you can't play to the room there's no room to play to you're just on headphones mm -hmm. so, you know what i mean so it's a different i get it yeah i understand but it's it worked out well <laughs> it sounds yeah. it sounds um so one other thing, I, I I can't keep you too long because uh, I have to teach some students, but I want to just ask you um, one other thing that's impressive to me about you uh, that and we've never actually physically met, but 
besides your drive for music, it's not like you, um, you put yourself out there, man. And I, I think that's cool. Like even I, I remember getting a phone call from you. Hey, Jay, I know you're a bass player. If there's anything in the area you can use me for, or if there's any things you could recommend where to go. And, you know, it, and it translates. And, uh, you know, I, I remember you from that. And then like two weeks later, I'm playing at the Long Branch Distillery and Mark who runs it's like, you know, this guy, Charlie. And I said, yeah, yeah, use him, man. Put him on a gig. So, um, you know, how much of your your time is spent thinking about the business aspect or is it just that you just want to get yourself out there and you just go for it? Daniel and I talk about this a lot. Again, going back to Miles Davis, Daniel loves this idea about Miles's um, drive to make money. Paper. You see, Daniel calls it paper, right? Like right. hip hop. I guess he got that from like hip hop. He calls it making paper. And I said, of you know, Miles, or, or speaking only for myself, I feel like I'm, you know, a small shark in the ocean eating what I kill, basically. Hmm. So you have to be motivated in order to eat like that, like a predatory animal eats. Sure. You have to be excited by the feeling it gives you when it fills you up. And that's what making money is like hmm. in order to actually progress and explore other parts of the ocean floor. You have to be looking for food. So I'm always looking for food. Right. Right. So the business side of it is incredibly stimulating for me. I love it. And wow. every single, you know, I have, I have, I need to go to a studio. I have 10 hours worth of lessons I took privately with Pat Martino. In those lessons, you know, he talked, he's always talking about, I'm a businessman, be a businessman. Charlie, you're a good businessman. This is what you need to do to maintain your integrity. This is how you become, a, you know, how you maintain your artistry as a businessman, right? So even, so Pat was singularly focused on the business aspect of it too. But what I learned is that it's, it's very fulfilling. It's very stimulating to be good at the business side of it. I love getting a call for a gig. I love charging, you know, I book weddings for string quartets. I love charging the bride three thousand dollars i really <laughs> excited right. about the ability to you know i mean you know the reason i my main client is new york city schools for blues alive is they have a lot of money i charge them a lot right right i'm not you know right. i don't know what i'm doing like i'm going to them because i wrote a program for them and then i'm getting paid a lot for it yeah you know I mean? so I that ability to that it's very exciting to me to do something that i'm going to get paid a lot for you know yeah no I, I i understand yeah but it's it's interesting even with your own personal stuff though you're um very you're very definitive in this is the way i present my music i i don't like rock and roll so i'm not going to do it which which was like to the point i was to make about my friend great jazz guitar player Hey, hey, dude, you want to play a gig? What kind of music is it? Yeah, uh, yeah I don't want to do it. I said, man, it pays like a thousand bucks. No, I don't want to do it. You know, and I was like, to me, I have a family of, you know, I have three kids. I'm doing it. You know what I mean? But like, I I get philosophy with that is, you know, I mean, I <laughs> I've never been in a position where 
you know, I, I know where to go to make money. If I'm going to be working anything other than precisely what I want to do, I'm not going to suffer through living in Brooklyn. I'm not going to suffer this lifestyle that I have if I can't do precisely what I want. If I have, if, if it can't string it together anymore, I'm going right. to move somewhere where it's easier to live and I'm going to do other things to, you know, before I moved to New York, I worked in a bank for 10 years. You know, hmm. I didn't try to teach more lessons. I didn't try to teach more guitar lessons. I didn't try to do, I tried to keep my money making separate from this. Right. You know, so I have some guitar students. I always have, you know, but it's not really, you know, I'm trying to, if you could be, I'm trying to appeal to a market that has more money somehow. I don't know how that is or why or how to do it. <clears throat> I'm starting to figure it out, but I'm understanding that that's what I'm actually trying to do. I'm coming to terms with the fact that that's what I'm trying to do. I'm, I don't want to get a job teaching you know, Berkeley or some jazz camp over the summer, sweating all summer so some kid can not learn how to play tune-up well enough. Or right. I'm just not interested in these things that most people are interested in. I'm interested in something different. To me, it's, it's, it just, it's easier to just do it the way that – it's easier for me to just do it the way that I think I should be doing it than it is to try to keep somebody else happy when it's not even going to get me enough money anyway. Right. <clears throat> yeah, I get it. I get it. Cool. All right. So let's bring it back just because I got to cut this short a little bit. Um, but this was, this was a, was a lot of fun for me to, thank to you. see. Man, I love it. I love it. I, I'm very appreciative. So thank you for having me. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. And I'm going to, when I get to my Hendrix on my 30 for 30, you might be getting a call because it sounds like you <laughs> the guy but um so tell me tell the listeners when they can expect the record how they can get it and any performances or anything else you want them to know so it's you know ironcity.nyc backslash grio grios i guess it is so that's the grio speak <clears throat> it's on origin mm -hmm. so just slide down here you can order it there you can click on this button i put together a nice little you know another little video here this is me and june and daniel kind of talking in the studio and it's intercut with um here this one's really cool actually i'm not quite getting i'm not getting the video it says you're, you're starting the screen share but nothing's coming up. so if you go to <coughs> ironcity.nyc backslash grio grios mm -hmm. there's that working no, I just have you. But that's okay, because it's going to be on a, it's an audio thing anyway, so. Oh, okay. Um, there are videos that I put of us actually in the studio. So you can get like a visual kind of walkthrough of what it was like when we were recording this, which is very cool. Um, <clears throat> so go on the website, ironcity.nyc backslash grios. There's a button on there to click to direct you to Origin Records where you can order it on, it's only available on CD. Um, maybe someday I'll, I'll put this record out on vinyl. The next one, so this record's called um, Destiny Calling. 
anybody who votes for the Grammys, it is, um, it has Grammy consideration in two categories. So please help me get to the nomination process. I'd love to have a, at least a Grammy nomination, if not a win under my belt, that'd be pretty great for free jazz. I think that'd be a pretty cool thing. Yeah. Um, the follow-up record is called call to action, call to prayer. I'm going to release that next year. I want to release that on vinyl. So I might end up just doing it myself <clears throat> um, or partner with Zoho or partner with Origin again. And that one differs in that it's a continuous performance with no editing. Mm. Right. Cool. All right. Great, man. And then we'll uh, check you out. Check the schedule for Triumph, which is not far from where I'm speaking right now. Uh, Red Bank, New Jersey is where, where that is. And I'm there. November 10th and I'm there starting in January the first Saturday of every month oh yeah oh I'll definitely come check you out yeah that's great yeah it's with Iron City you know with Brad on on organ and Austin on drums and we're gonna have conga players with us we're gonna have you know we're gonna rotate a fourth member every month actually, you said it's the first Saturday of every month uh yes okay because I'm I actually I will I have a first Saturday of every month in Red Bank about a mile down the road from you there at a Oyster Point Hotel, just a bass and piano. So uh, I'll stop into your gig. And oh, that's you... awesome. <laughs> yeah, and that's cool. Right on. Cool, man. Charlie, it was great speaking to you. Great meeting you. And I'm sure we'll that's get it. Yeah, some point. yeah, thank you enough. Anything you need, give me a call. I'm happy to be involved. All right. Appreciate you, man. Thank you. Thank you. All right, my friends, there you have it. There is my conversation with Charlie Apicella. I hope you enjoyed. Be sure to check out his music and all his activities. To do so, just go to ironcity.nyc. Once again, that's ironcity.nyc. Look forward to speaking to you again soon. Let's keep this music alive. Peace. <laughs>